morning, everyone. Thank you very much for getting up so early. I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence. I'm going to hand over in about a nanosecond to Adam Bolton of Sky News. Um, we asked Sky News to be our partner on this event because of uh, their and arguably Adam's you know, fairly unrivaled track record in uh, scoping out what's happening in politics. I'm going to tell you very briefly, and you can read it in your material on your chairs, that editorial intelligence specialises in really mapping and monitoring the world of opinion forming and the comment media. And these events, which take place about once a month, are always designed to juxtapose those people who inform and shape uh, policy with those who comment on it. And without further ado, I would like to say that... um, Martin Lejeune is here in front of me from Sky News, if anyone wants to hear the many glories of the channel afterwards. And various people in EI t-shirts are here, if anyone wants to hear the glories of EI. But for now, I'd like to hand you over to Adam Bolton. Thank you. Well, welcome indeed on uh, 9.12, I suppose I have to call it. And... um, I think it's fair to say amongst EI uh, and uh, indeed uh, uh, some of uh, the Sky participants, there's a certain amount of smugness at the choice of today's title, politics and uh, political comment beyond Tony Blair, because uh, uh, in the space uh, between when the invitations were printed and today, of course, it's moved from being uh, speculative to uh, corporeal reality. It's uh, going, I think, to be a very interesting discussion. partly obviously because of the volatility which there currently is in in British politics and indeed in global politics, but also uh, because uh, under uh, editorial intelligence uh, we have to work out where uh, comment ends and politics begins. And therefore, uh, I'm delighted that we have such a distinguished panel, all of whom as commentators of one kind or another have contributed a great deal while uh, managing to keep down Uh, a very important day job of one kind uh, or another as well. The format is going to be very simple. Uh, I'll ask each of them to speak for no more than five minutes, uh, outlining their thoughts on what at this stage is a fairly diffuse topic. Uh, Then we will have interactive discussion live with you, uh, and I I, I guarantee uh, that we'll be finished by 10 a.m., so no one need have any anxiety Uh, about their next engagements. Uh, To introduce uh, the panel, they are from furthest away from me, uh, Steve Richards, uh, who is uh, the chief political commentator for The Independent, but who uh, also has a very distinguished career uh, as a broadcaster, uh, including uh, for GMTV early on a Sunday morning. Uh, Next to him is... uh, Baroness Helena Kennedy, uh, Labour Baroness uh, and a barrister, uh, and uh, she was the chair of the Power Inquiry, which, in my view, came up with some very interesting ideas about reconnection and renewal uh, in politics, uh, phrases I'm sure we're going to hear more of this morning. Uh, Then uh, I'm joined by Peter Kellner, founder and chair of uh, YouGov, uh, the Internet uh, Polling and Political Service, but of course Peter a uh, very distinguished uh, broadcaster and writer as well on politics, particularly at the cephalogical end of the business. Next, uh, Chris Hoon, uh, Liberal Democrat MP for Eastleigh, currently their environment spokesman, uh, before that an MEP and uh, also a Guardian columnist and uh, economics expert. And finally, Ian Dale, uh, Conservative candidate uh, at the last general election, Chief of Staff to David Davis. I noticed that sort of disappearing out of your biography. <laughs> uh, 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 but... Uh, 
currently perhaps uh, uh, one of the liveliest uh, political bloggers, and uh, Ian is doing much, I think, to... We haven't quite worked out whether it's called blogdom or the blogosphere, but anyway, uh, Ian is beginning to uh, map it out for us uh, like an explorer. So that is our panel, and Steve Richards is going first. Thanks, Adam. I I won't waste my uh, five minutes by talking about the current political situation because it's pretty clear what's happening. I think most of you will have a sense of that. So I will look at the sort of comment dimension of the Blair-Brown dynamics and how it might change when... Blair goes. I'll start by an observation Roy Jenkins made to me uh, when he was still alive, where he said that um, it must be a real problem for all of you columnists now, because there are only two interesting people in British politics. Uh, he said, when in the 1970s, you had Tony Benn, you had me, and uh, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher, um, and the Conservatives, and the SDP, and David Owen, and now you've got Blair and Brown. Um, and that's your lot. And he was, uh, he was right, of course, that for the last Ten years with a disappearing Conservative Party, that that's changing. Um, And a Labour Party focused on this duopoly. It's been very hard as a columnist, frankly. I remember talking with somebody else about this who writes twice a week. And I said, why don't we set ourselves a test of trying for the next four weeks to do columns without mentioning Blair and Brown? We failed completely after about the third day, I think, of this thing. These two have dominated politics, and therefore it's been difficult for readers who wonder what the hell's going on. But if you move too far away from those two over the last 10 years, you move far away from where the strings are being pulled, and you end up sort of writing as if you're on Mars, because this is where the dynamic has been. Two other very quick observations from two other journalists. I remember very early on in the first term, he won't mind me mentioning this, or nor will the other, uh, friend and colleague of mine, John Lloyd, had a chat with Peter Mandelson, and Peter Mandelson said, so what do you think of Tony and Gordon? And John Lloyd said, well, I admire them both in different ways. I, I'm not in either camp. And Peter Mandelson just sort of said, that's impossible. And John was somewhat taken aback. And another, and another brief one, my friend and colleague, uh, Don McIntyre, who used to write the columns that I write in The Independent, I said to him, why are you going off to the Middle East? You know, you've got this job writing political columns, fantastic. He said he feels safer in the Middle East. (laughs) Um, And so, as columnists, and I think it has been harder in some ways than what Adam does, because columnists always have to come down on one side or the other. And so you've had this odd thing of Blairite columnists, Brownite columnists, I know columnists, frankly, obviously won't name them, who I think have tried to define themselves as columnists by becoming one or the other. Um, that has resulted in columnists having limited access to one side or the other, and therefore, for readers, you've had to sort of, you have to read about four or five columnists to get a real sense of what's going on, because there is this imbalance where people have access to one side or the other. And in my view, information is an important part of a column, and exclusive information even better when you get it if one side or the other feels you are sympathetic to them. I think overall that has been unhealthy um, because, you know, politics is more complicated, however much this duopoly has pulled the strings, than whether you get on with one side, whether you've said one person is better than the other. There have also been... I think, quite important policy differences between the two sides that have rarely surfaced 
amidst the kind of soap opera of scheming and manoeuvring and who's up and who's down and why is it so awful. And certainly when you read the Sunday sometimes, it really just does come across as a soap opera, whereas actually, to give both of them credit, I think they've been battling over more substantial issues than pure vanity, ego, and all the kind of Shakespearean themes that have surrounded them really since 1994. Looking ahead, therefore... I, as a columnist, feel sort of naively optimistic on one level because, and this is not about one or the other to maintain the John Lloyd Balancing Act, it was always the case when one went, this particular dynamic in the media would by definition go as well. And therefore, I think there might be more of an opening up in commentary and in other parts of the media in the post-Blair era, because by definition, the running soap opera, at least that soap opera, ends. Now, of course, there will be many others that will surface. That's politics, and it's part of the joy of politics. But this particular one will end, and you will not have Blairite and Brownite columnists offering their alternative definitions on a daily basis, because Tony Blair won't be there. Um, so I think it might become more interesting, actually, as a columnist, and you have a Conservative Party doing some more interesting things and so on. So I think that um, this kind of odd period, uh, where I don't think readers have been especially well served, um, will inevitably come to a messy end quite soon, and that's a good thing. Just on the politics of it briefly, I do think that this duopoly, while in many ways a highly effective way of running politics, by definition, they've won three elections, does raise issues. Why isn't it that we haven't spent much more time writing about other cabinet ministers? Uh, they, the, the, the Labour Party now, and to some extent the Conservative Party, are, the, the figures are totally dependent on the patronage of those at the very top and live and breathe on that basis Alone and therefore few. I don't believe, by the way, some people say, oh, in 20 years' time, you'll look back at this cabinet as you know, an, a, a fascinating bunch of heavyweights like you do now with the 70s and 60s. I don't think you will, actually. Um, my experience is you could write sometimes about Robin Cook and one or two others, a very interesting David Blunkett and so on. But on the whole, I think what these cabinet ministers have done, it's partly because of 18 years of opposition. Has the five minutes gone? Yeah, All right, <laughs> I will stop there. Is just be pleased to be there. Uh, and, and, and to serve their prime ministerial master. And I think, in a way, although that has produced a highly effective sense of discipline, it does mean there has been an over-dependence on these two titans at the top, which has affected the media clearly, but has also got implications for politics. Thank you. Steve thank you. Baroness Kennedy. Well, I imagine that most of you um, are aware, even if you didn't get around to reading the great fat tome that was the Power Inquiries report, um, but I just want to, to remind you how it came into being. We, went, we were set up, funded by the Roundtree Trusts, and it was a, a, a group of people who were not the obvious suspects of the great and the grand, included um, a, quite an interesting variety of people. Met, I, I would say that probably the majority of whom would not have considered themselves belonging to a particular political party or particularly aligned. 
And uh, when we took evidence, many of you, in fact, ended up being people that we went to and, in, in fact, took evidence from as being part of that commentariat. But we also um, went out and travelled the country and uh, actually spoke to folk on the ground and not just self-selecting people, but actually turned up at community centres when they were having their, their uh, monthly c community meeting. And, uh, and, and so we did get a very strong sense of what people were feeling about the state of the nation. And it was very interesting because I, I, I actually think that there is a, a very clear and important thing that whoever takes over in the Labour Party and whoever is leading other parties is going to have to be aware of, which is that the, the public, the general public out there are very disengaged from politics. And I have no doubt that what's happened in the last couple of weeks will have added to their sense of horror about what it is that politicians are in politics for. And although, I mean, I, I think it's, it's only fair to say that most politicians do want to create change and that's, that is their, their reason for going to politics. People are very, very uh, alienated and don't feel that uh, they have a great deal of regard for politicians. Um, but when you scraped away at the surface of that, they actually felt that a lot of it was to do with the way that the system worked. And so they want a new way of politics being done. And they want uh, the you know, spin and, uh, and so on to be, to be removed from it. They also want to have much more say. And it's a difficult thing to manage that, but I think that whoever um, uh, does come in to lead uh, the Labour Party post Blair and whoever makes a pitch against him is going to have to seriously engage with the ways in which you bring the, the, the public in, into politics more without it becoming about sheer populism. And I think that there are ways that you manage that and that you find deliberative processes and so on. What the, the political parties, and I, and I listened to Gordon Brown uh, being interviewed uh, on Sunday morning, and I heard him saying, um, and I, um, I hope it was in response to some of the pressings that have come out of uh, uh, the, the Power Inquiry's report, is that uh, he was saying that you know, one of the things that he had done when he became the Chancellor was that he immediately gave power away uh, to the Bank of England. And that great moment of giving power away was a, an, an action of strength because, in fact, you know, that's what strong leaders should be able to do. And the, the, while well, that is absolutely right, it will be interesting to see how that manifests itself because there's no doubt that that's what people want, is that they want to see a devolving of power. But as we know, the British way of doing things is that to, to devolve power usually means to retain power. Um, and that's not me saying that. That was Enoch Powell some years ago. But it is true that we have a very, uh, a very astute way um, in British, British politics of um, devolving power and giving an ostensible uh, 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 sense that power is being given away, but in fact it's actually being drawn still to, to the centre. And so um, I think that there are real challenges for anybody coming in as to what a new way of doing politics is going to mean. I've just been reading Joe Klein's recent book, Joe Klein, uh, the, you know, who wrote Primary Colours, and his recent book is called Politics Lost. I, I wouldn't suggest that you all take it on holiday with you or find a lot of time for it because I think it's something of a potboiler. But he is doing in it, he's looking at the influence of consultants and so on on politicians, how destructive that can be. He also really does a very interesting little examination of the Gore bid against Bush and what happened there. And it's very interesting because one of the things he says is that it, how difficult it is for an incumbent vice president to make a bid uh, for the big job. And I think there is that problem, and we can all see it in relation to the, the argument that's been going on recently with Brown, in that if you want to 
start engaging with ideas that are going to, in the end, challenge the incumbent because you're going to be saying that their way of doing politics hasn't, or, you know, hasn't, hasn't been working and that has to be rethought. Inherent in it is a criticism, so you can't win. On the one hand, you're seen to be disloyal if you have that very public debate, and on the other hand, um, uh, if you remain silent and hold it close to, to, to your heart, you're seen as being uh, uh, you know, deeply um, uh, power-controlling. So there's a problem about it, and they found that same thing with Gore. They had a great difficulty of disengaging him and, and somehow letting him um, run with ideas of his own. And then when he did, he was sort of totally trying to distance himself completely from uh, Clinton because of the sex allegations. So is a, there's an interesting problem, I think, for Brown in this business of how he restates um, any kind of um, alignment to, if you like, the, the new Labour project, which I'm sh is not going to change. I mean, for all the, 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 the words that are out there about returning to old Labour, it ain't going to happen, whoever ends up being in the leadership of the Labour Party. But, uh, but what you're talking about is where does it go from here? And while it started off as being a project which was about talking about serious constitutional change, which was about you know, more power to the people, in fact, it didn't. It hasn't gone the full road. And how do you take how do you take it further? And in some ways, this is a continuation of the work that started in Charter eighty eight, which was about you know trying to re reconfigure the architecture of Britain's co constitution to make it work for the times. But there was a sort of cowardice about about doing it in a real way because to actually give power away is a very difficult thing. And, and for also not to turn itself into a very ugly form of kind of uh, um, uh, you know, tabloid-managed populism would be also quite problematic. The only thing I would say to all of you is that in taking the evidence from people, what was very heartening was that, that whether it's on the housing estates or wh wherever it is, people know about, they know what the complexion of a, a newspaper is. And so they're not completely taken in by this idea that, you know, this notion that... Um, uh, you know, the Sun newspaper is independent. They don't think that. They know what the Sun's position is. And the same way that they know what the Daily Mail's position is. People are not stupid. And I think that once you start patronising people and not realising that they've got quite a strong sense of where particular uh, pe you know, commentators' p uh, position is, they know. They know what Lit Richard Littlejohn stands for. So um, we, you, we should accept that. The interesting thing that came out of Klein's um, work, and I saw him in the summer, was... And it's a message for anybody who wants to make a bid for leadership, whichever party they're in, is that there eventually are three questions to ask about leaders. And the first one is, are they going to be a strong leader? The second one is, can you trust them? And that's where, you know, the Labour Party's in, in trouble at the moment because of the whole business of the war. And the third one is, what's he going to do for me? And so sections of the community have to be sure that, that whoever it is is not going to somehow um, um, be out of, uh, of uh, tune with what their aspirations are. And so there are interesting issues there. And for the media, I hope that it's not going to be you know, turned into this thing where because you have very little political difference between people, it turns into only being about personalities. There are important political issues in the, in the firmament, and they have to be addressed. And some of them are about pinning down you know, and, and I think that you have to look at this constitutional stuff, pinning down the relationship between Parliament and the executive, pinning down the relationship between the local and the centre. And I think Gordon Brown, those are things that Gordon Brown is interested in. And while he won't go the whole hog for a written constitution, I think he will look at the suggestion that we made, which was that you have 
a very British way of doing that, of creating, if you like, vertebrae in the spinal column, where you actually pin down certain relationships in, I, 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 and make sure that they're clear and that you don't have abuse of them by those who are, who are in power. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Chris Oon. Thanks. Um, well, I, I didn't know whether we were meant to be talking about politics or political comments, so I'll try and be very brief and talk a bit about both. But it, it seems to me that there are a number of key trends which are happening uh, almost globally, uh, some of them with greater strength in the UK than, than elsewhere, um, one of which is, of course, globalisation, which in itself is a political construct. Uh, it can't happen without political commitment. We've seen another classic example of political choices being exercised in the debate over uh, immigration from uh, Romania and Bulgaria, for example, another uh, staging post in the, in the whole debate about globalisation. That's one big trend which anybody in British politics essentially has to cope with and address uh, and make sure that those who are particularly adversely affected are brought in to the uh, potential gains from globalisation. <coughs> Second and related to that, because globalisation is obviously putting a lot of stress on British society, uh, although perhaps less than on some others, uh, is how, as Helena said, we reconnect uh, people to the British political process. And I think that uh, this government has left us with a substantial unfinished agenda. We've made a lot of progress in terms of constitutional reform. If you think just in terms of electoral reform, for example, we now have electorally reformed Scottish Parliament, Welsh Assembly, uh, London, European Parliament, uh, all of this has made substantial progress. We don't yet have, uh, and nobody is talking, by the way, in terms of the elected uh, element of the House of Lords, of anything other than an electorally reformed uh, system uh, for electing people to the House of Lords. So it seems to me we're halfway through a process which almost ineluctably is going to lead to electoral reform uh, for uh, Westminster. Uh, we always used to hear about the thin end of the wedge, which is why we couldn't ever have any electoral reform for anything. Well, we've now got about halfway through a fairly thick end uh, of the wedge. And it is worth pointing out that this, too, is a fairly international phenomenon. We've had, over the last 25 years, an enormous growth internationally of democracies. If you look at Central and Eastern Europe, but not just, also in Asia, also in Latin America, there's been a fantastic trend towards democratic success compared with uh, the old men on horseback of totalitarian regimes. Uh, and not a single one of the new democracies in the last 25 years has adopted our system. Uh, far from being the mother of parliaments, uh, it seems that we're the black widow uh, of parliaments in the sense that this is something that uh, actively new democracies want to shy away from and choose an alternative to. So I think the Helena agenda... Uh, is absolutely right, that we have to think of ways of reconnecting. Third big trend, how do we explain what's happened under the new Labour government? We've had a massive increase in public spending, uh, 35% in real terms since 1997, and yet nobody, hand on heart, would say that we've actually got anything like that increase uh, in terms of output. What's the explanation? How can you spend so much public money and get so little... Uh, relative reward for it. And I think the, 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 the element there, again, part of the, uh, the, the, the explanation is over how little local accountability exists within the UK. 
uh, as a proxy for how centralist we are, look at where the tax revenue goes. 94% of all tax revenue in this country goes through central government. There is only one EU member state where that proportion is higher. It's 100%, but it's 100% in Malta, with a population about the same size as the London Borough of Croydon. The average uh, going through central government is actually just over 50% in the EU. We are an unbelievably centralised society, and that explains why people are unable, unable to hold local decision-takers to account and why I believe uh, the government has failed to deliver the sort of increases in quality which they were entitled to expect uh, given uh, the increases in money. I'm not criticising the increases in money. It was a necessary condition. But what we haven't done is put in place uh, the, 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 the political reform which has enabled that money to be spent uh, properly. Uh, fourth big trend, the environment. Uh, that's coming, climate change is coming down the track globally. It's going to change all of our lives in very deep, very profound ways over the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, and I think British political parties will be defined to a very large extent on how they react, whether they're ahead of that particular curve or behind it. Uh, and I think that's one to watch. Now, turning uh, briefly to political commentary, uh, from what I've said, and having, as Adam, as Adam said, spent... Um, more than 10 years writing a weekly column for The Guardian and then The Independent on Sunday, uh, I know the difficulties of trying to come up with uh, new things to say, and I very much feel for Steve and his, um, uh, with his problems uh, there. I have to say that if I were doing his job, I would be a little less impressed by Thomas Carlyle and the theory of great leaders and a little more impressed by Karl Marx uh, and uh, the question of structure. Odd thing, perhaps, for a liberal Democrat to say... Uh, but the reality is that politics is happening within a structure, within trends which are buffeting all of us, that often when you talk to political leaders, when they get into positions of responsibility, they say, ah, oh, I thought when I got to this job, I thought when I became this minister, I would actually be able to do things. But in fact, I'm so constrained, I really can't. And those constraints are often the most interesting thing uh, about politics. How are they changing? How are things uh, opening up? And I'm astonished when I read the political commentaries of how little political commentators address these serious, long-run trend issues. I mean, we still haven't had, to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm a pretty avid reader of the papers, we haven't had a piece, for example, which uh, goes into detail about whether anybody else could win the Labour leadership or whether we think that Gordon Brown has got the union vote so locked up uh, that that effectively uh, is a done deal. I don't even know uh, what the latest situation is uh, on the block vote for each of the... I notice Amicus has declared for Gordon Brown today. Uh, I know that some of the other unions are holding their fire, but uh, how big and how significant is the block vote? What uh, a good analysis from one of the leading commentators on the effect of, of boundary changes, on the changing electoral frontier for the Lib Dems. Good piece by John Curtis, for example, showing for the first time since the decline of the historic uh, Liberal Party as an academic piece. Uh, since the decline of the historic Liberal Party, that Liberal Dems can actually gain as many seats from Labour as from the Tories, and therefore uh, that's changed the shape uh, of the electoral frontier. The effect of race and ethnic group changes, the Muslim vote, for example, regional effects, and why? Why is London going more Tory? There's obviously a cephalogical element to this. Take in uh, Peter Kellner, who will obviously be speaking next. Uh, but it seems to me that there's surprisingly little, given the amount of academic work which there is, that columnists actually tap into uh, on these issues. Party membership. Uh, how come 
that all of Britain's political parties now have a combined membership uh, smaller than that of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Isn't that worrying? Shouldn't we actually be looking at ways uh, in which we can try uh, and re-engage? Electoral systems, as I say, what is happening, for example, with the new electoral reform in Scotland, where as from next spring, you're going to have the single transferable vote for local elections. For a, in the first time in 100 years, in the red central belt of Scotland, people are actually going to have a real choice. I mean, most people in the red central belt in Scotland haven't had a choice since Keir Hardy. <laughs> they're now actually going to have a real... They're going to have contestable <coughs> political systems for the first time. What difference is that going to make? How are the parties reacting? But, of course, it's very difficult to persuade any uh, commentator uh, who is actually employed by a London newspaper uh, to get outside London at all. Watford is a long way away, and Edinburgh uh, is, uh, could be the Antarctic, as far as many of them are concerned. In fact, I think it's probably easier to get them to go to the Antarctic with David Cameron uh, than to have a look at what's happening in Edinburgh. So that's my blast off about the political commentators. But I do think, I, I, I very much feel, you look at some of the blogs and you look at, for example, some of the commentary on the net, it's often much more focused, it's often much more aware of constraints on politicians, and it's often much more aware of the academic work uh, which is out there, which is very important, which any political professional has to be aware of, which is actually shaping uh, the framework within which politics operates. Chris, thank you. Peter Keller. Adam, like, um, like Chris, I'm a recovering journalist. Um, <laughs> and, and, and like Chris, I'm dissatisfied with a lot of political commentary. I think a lot of it is mendacious, it's trivial and it's obsessed with personalities. In this, I think it accurately reflects the discourse of the people it writes about, um, because politicians <laughs> are just the same. Um, so that is a criticism. But the bigger criticism, I think, is um, not that over the last few days, for example, we've had different, not always consistent, inside accounts of uh, Blair versus Brown last week, that's inevitable and, and, and not wrong. My criticism, fundamentally, is the absence of um, a more serious, a more, dare I say, political look at the conflict. Let me give as a precise example the two interviews that Charles Clark gave um, to the Evening Standard and to the Daily Telegraph in which he slagged off Gordon Brown. They were great scoops for those two newspapers. I've not seen anybody make the point that Charles Clark did not, in either interview, make a single political point. He didn't discuss whether Gordon Brown uh, has been or is or will be right about taxation or about America or about Europe or about climate change or about globalisation or about any of the things that actually affect people's lives here or in other countries. Um, there's one tiny exception. Charles Clark did say that he had run-ins with Gordon Brown on identity cards and tuition fees. I would have expected, or rather would have hoped, not expected, that some journalist somewhere would revisit those conflicts. What actually happened? I think I know fragments of what happened in those two instances. On ID cards, the conflict <coughs> happened around the time when the Home Office was doing its um, comprehensive spending review agreement, very early uh, on Home Office spending, when Charles Clark had... Uh, accepted willingly that Home Office spending would uh, not rise over the next few years, 
And Gordon Brown said, well, hang on, where does the spending on ID cards fit into this? Can you find the money? And Charles Clark said, no, I, I need extra money. And Gordon Brown said, that's a problem. On tuition fees, perhaps more tellingly, the proposal that went from <coughs> Charles Clark as Secretary of State for Education to the Treasury included uh, the repayment of student fees being at a real level, a real positive level of interest rates. Which, if you're a young woman thinking that you might take a career break to have a family and come back to work later, stacking up a debt that is increasing in real terms beyond inflation. Gordon Brown said, no, that's ridiculous, can't have that. Remember, they won it by a majority of five on that um, vote in the Commons. I think if Gordon Brown hadn't stood out against a real interest rate, the government would have lost it. Gordon Brown saved Charles Clark's bacon. That's my view. My point, though, here is that there is real politics going on in the world, in the government. Um, and I would like the journalistic community not to abandon writing about personalities, that is plainly ridiculous, but to add to that some serious reflection on these issues. Um, you know, the 21st century, these points have been made uh, before, but you know, we've got a whole series of really crunchy issues to do with globalisation, to do with climate change, to do with ideology, to do with terrorism and civil liberties, to do with identity, whether it's to do with migration or devolution or Europe, whether we as societies, as people, can be adult enough, each of us to have a series of um, overlapping identities, not all of our identities exactly the same as each other's, and find a way of rubbing along with each other with these multiple identities. There are huge issues. Um, and I think, to be fair to both of them, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, have, over their, the last 10 or 20 years, been engaged with these kinds of issues, as well as slagging each other off and briefing and the rest of it, and having a little sort of members of their own Hitler youth attacking each other. Um, you know, the, but, but I do think there is an imbalance in the discourse, um, which I blame largely but not completely the journalistic community um, for one very, very final point, as I said, I've heard, in terms of journalism, I don't think yet we, any of us understand how the internet and blogging is going to change the, the business, the financial business of journalism. To what extent news organisations will be able to charge their readers or viewers for things that those readers and viewers can get for free. Um, and I suspect, and I don't quite know how, that in 10 or 20 years journalistic products will look very different from the way they are now because of blogging, because of the internet. What I hope will happen is that there will be profits to be made for the serious kind of information providing that you can't really get from blogs. As C.P. Scott didn't quite say, current is free but facts are expensive. Um, I hope there will be a good business to be gained from investing the resources and the effort and the intellectual power into finding things out and making them accessible to the public. But I don't know, and it could go either way. Peter, thank you. So get your uh, questions or comments ready. Coming to you very soon. But before that, Ian Dale. Um, I'd like to start by introducing you to a new term, blog scratching. 
Um, Adam was very kind to scratch my blog at the beginning of this, uh, <laughs> this event. I'm now going to scratch his, because he, Adam is to blogging. Um, he, he, he is the most prolific blogger, the most prolific journalistic blogger, having blogged throughout his honeymoon. So he's, he is living, pro living proof that all journalists who use this lazy excuse that we don't have time to blog, he's living proof that that is a load of rubbish. Um, I want to start with an anecdote. Joe Phillips, who's sitting at the back, and I are West Ham season ticket holders. So as well as being chief of staff to David Davis, I like losing causes, I like supporting a team that isn't going to win anything. Um, but w when we're sort of admiring Teddy Sheringham's passes or sort of getting rather bored by the opposition, we talk about media. And she said to me, she related an anecdote about addressing a course of media studies students at Kingston University um, a few months ago. And she asked them what national newspapers they read every day. And there were about 30 there, I guess that's sort of 18 to 20 years old. Only one of them bought a national newspaper every day. All of the others got their news information from the internet and from other news sources apart from newspapers. So it isn't going to be a change of prime minister that changes political commentary in this country. I believe firmly that it's actually technology that's going to drive that change. 20 or 25 years ago, Chris said this to me just before we came in, everybody on the left would read Peter Jenkins or Alan Watkins. Those were the commentators that every single person on the left would take notice of. Now you've got a lot of Peter Jenkins and Alan Watkins who you don't necessarily read every week, but you sort of get through the internet, through, um, through the blogs and through other sources. Um, I was on Steve's programme a few months ago, and he said to me that he had regarded bloggers six months ago as people in pyjamas who had nothing better to do with their lives but tap away at their laptops in their bedrooms. But he's changed his view, and he now regards bloggers as a, a kind of threat to his existence as a commentator. Now, why is that? It's because if... If we as political commentators on the internet want to write something, we can post it within minutes. I mean, I can go out of this room, I could actually do it now and post it from my Blackberry. And I can get 20 or 30,000 people reading that every day. So there is an immediacy factor here, which mainstream media commentators just do not have. Even Adam on Sky News doesn't quite have that. BBC journalists don't have that because they have the editorial process to go through, which, which we as bloggers don't. Now that's obviously in some ways an advantage, but in some ways can be a disadvantage too. So how's the mainstream media reacting to this? Up to fairly recently, The Guardian, I think, was about the only newspaper that recognised this threat to them uh, several years ago, and they instituted Guardian Unlimited and then commented free as a, as a direct reaction to that. The Times have now started to recognise it too, and I, I would lay bets that at the moment, two people on this panel have a blog. I would lay bets with you that within the next 12, 12 months, two years, everybody on this panel will have a blog, whether they like it or not. <laughs> there will be those who are temperamentally unable to react to this change. I mean, I doubt very much, for instance, whether we'll be seeing the Bruce Anderson blog in my <laughs> lifetime, and thanks, thanks be to the Lord for that. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's not just news journalists that have to react quickly. Commentators now have to rush to judgment, which again is a danger. No longer 
do you just look forward to your weekly column and spend the week sort of musing over the events of the week, you are under pressure to get that comment out there very soon. Now, politicians, too, are way behind the mainstream media in dealing with technology and recognising the demands that the, the, the new, uh, new readers make of them. Um, the Labour Party yesterday appointed its official conference blogger. A good thing, you may think, until you see who it is. It's someone who runs a blog that doesn't even allow comments on their blog. Very new Labour decision, <laughs> I, I, I would say. Um, I've been compiling a guide to blogging, which will include sort of the rankings of the sort of top 100 Labour blogs, top 100 Tory blogs, top dozen, I mean 100 Lib Dem blogs, um, and w which will be published at the conference. And I, lo I looked up... <laughs> Actually, there's some very good Lib Dem blogs. I, 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 I looked up this blog. It's from the Thirsk and Moulton Constituency Labour Party blog. And I looked up where I had ranked this in the top 100. And it was actually at number 105. So I don't think we're going to get much independence of comment through that. But we also have to recognise that my blog, the Guido Fawkes blog, the Conservative Home blog, we all get more hits on our individual blogs than any of the political parties get on their party websites. Now, if the political parties don't learn something from that, they're missing a trick. Why do people go to blogs rather than party websites? It's because they think they're just going to get propaganda on party websites. And by and large, that is true. Now, I'm, I just want to finish um, by giving you an anecdote which shows how times have changed. In 1995, uh, you'll remember that John Major uh, stood down to have a leadership contest and that Michael Portillo was caught out putting phone lines in before John Major had actually done that. Well, 11 years on, the modern-day equivalent of putting phone lines in is that yesterday a blog called Dizzy Thinks found that Alan Johnson's little helpers had registered the domain names johnsonforleader.com. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> now, within half an hour of that being made public on his blog, the people who had registered the, those domain names had entered into a blind panic and had diverted those domain names to some obscure American senator called Johnson. <laughs> but uh, you can run, but you can't hide, because he had the screenshots of where it was. Thank you. Yeah, well, well, Ian Dale uh, gets the... Um Steve Richards Award, not a mention of Blair or Brown uh, in anything uh, to say. Uh, right, uh, I know some of you have got to leave, but I think there are a lot of uh, disparate axes grinding away there, but uh, all very interesting. So there are microphones. We can get a microphone uh, uh, to you if you could just say briefly who you are and comment or question, please. Um, I'm Mark Hansen. I'm a political blogger from thebigissue.net, so I'd love you to scratch my blog sometime. Um, uh, my, my point is more general, really. Um, it, it, there's lots and lots of comments about Blair and Brown and what happens after Blair's gone, when's he going to go, who doesn't like him, who thinks that Gordon's grumpy and, and this sort of thing. Now, I'm quite engaged, so I'm interested in this, but even I'm getting really bored with it. And I suppose my challenge is to Steve and to, to you, Adam, um, directly, which is to say, uh, it, when, when I go home to Liverpool, 
Um, or when you get in a cab in London, or even, Steve, when we were at the Progress Conference on Saturday, nobody's saying, oh, I've got to know when, when um, Blair's going to go, and isn't it terrible that, that Gordon seems to be not a very nice man, according to Charles? It's more kind of, well, you know, what's happening as regards more police on the street? What's happening with the health service? Um, I, I think people care as passionately about politics as they, as they ever did, but they're becoming switched off um, by the political process and they're becoming switched off to an extent by newspapers. They're reading less, buying less, as Ian said. And I just wonder whether, as a journalist, whether you genuinely have any feedback from people that says, I need to know more about the Blair-Brown feud, or do you just think it's interesting for the Westminster Village, therefore you want to write about it? Okay, Ian, you were muttering then. Well, I'm not sure I buy this, that people are bored by personalities. Um, I mean, I don't get in taxis and people say to me, oh, I'm really concerned about the health service. If they, know I'm, I mean, if they know I'm in politics and they know I'm a Conservative, they want to talk about David Cameron. What's he like? What do you know about him? And I think people have a right to ask questions about someone who is the most likely future Prime Minister. Um, so I think it's all, this Tony Benn thing about, oh, it's personality, it's not issues. I mean, it, yes, it ought to be, but it isn't, and it never will be. And so we've got to deal with the reality... Um, if I wrote my blog about sort of my views on health service reform or defence policy or whatever, nobody would read it. They like it because I have a mixture of commentary on policy issues, but they like the gossipy bits as well. So you've got to strike a balance. Now, some people do that better than others. You've got to read Dr. Crippen, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, just as I think there has been a real trend towards personality journalism. I think it comes out of, uh, as much out of the pressures in, 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 in the journalistic business as it does from... Uh, uh, the fact that, as uh, Steve said, you know, Brown and Blair have been politically the two colossi in, um, in British politics over the last decade. Uh, if you look and compare the average so-called quality newspaper today with 25 years ago, you've seen a major shift in content towards people, which is reflecting largely a broadcast agenda as well, and away from policy. There are far fewer stories in the uh, so-called quality papers, for example, written by... Uh, the home affairs specialist, the education specialist, they've often been relegated to special sections which happen once a week. Uh, there's much less run uh, of that sort of uh, story. And I think the columns reflect that. It's easy standard journalism to say if you want to engage your reader, you have to somehow personalise the story. You have to make sure that there are people uh, involved, and that's the Blair-Brown conflict, rather than, as I say, more than some of my remarks, the constraints, the structure, uh, some of the slower moving but right. very important trends. Everyone wants to get on this. Uh, Steve? Yeah, I mean, I don't apologise for rooting a lot of the writing uh, 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 with those two at the top. I agree with you about the policy thing. I mean, I think most of the disputes they have had actually have been over policy. Um, and in fact, once the editor of Prospect asked me to write a piece about the differences between Blair and Brown, strip away all, I wasn't allowed to mention ambition, rivalry, soap opera, just the policy differences. I found it very easy to do. I did 5,000 words. It was very quick. And it's not a widely read publication, but it, I, I think it was quite easy to show where the differences are between them in policy terms. And, and that was two or three years ago, and it's even easier now, to their great credit, a lot of the stuff they have been battling over have been over policy, and probably to our uh, 
failure, we have not highlighted enough of that. Um, although, again, if you read a range of papers, say from the Financial Times to the Guardian, the Independent, you will get a sense of the policy. But I do think you probably have to read a lot to get a balanced view of uh, what's going on. Um, so, uh, you see, Peter Kellner mentioned a couple of uh, things in relation to Clark. Actually, Clark did make a policy speech earlier in the week. Uh, last week, which got no publicity at all. And I think that's one of the reasons why I agreed to give these interviews um, <laughs> and slightly misjudged what uh, then would happen, um, uh, which was entirely his fault, um, in fact, if you look at the contrast between his weighty speech and what he said in the two, two interviews. But I have read and know about the sources of those rows between Clark and Brown. It is not that they haven't been explored. I just think that it's not quite as easy to get to this information as it was when, funnily enough, there was less media around. Oddly, it was easier to get to this uh, stuff. I just think Chris Hugh made a very important point about the constraints of power. I think one of the great distortions of our obsession with politicians is it gives the impression that they are, in fact, much more powerful than they really are. And I think that's true with the broadcasting media as well, who are obsessed just with interviews with cabinet ministers, most of whom are much less powerful than, uh, th than they appear to be. So I think that's an interesting but slightly different theme. Okay, uh, Roger. Uh, Roger Grave, I'm a, a filmmaker and a criminologist and an occasional commentator as well. Um, I wanted to pick up what uh, Helena was talking about in trying to uh, reconnect uh, ordinary people with, with politics and it seems to me a real paradox which I have struggled with un unsuccessfully l largely, which is that we live in a, quite a small country and we are part of Europe, but actually to get an anything on the screen or even into print uh, that reflects that is very, very difficult. Uh, and I've been putting up European ideas uh, for really 20 years. I did a film inside the EU in the, in the referendum, the last referendum, which is <coughs> the last film I could make. But by the time you get to the P, the person you're talking to is asleep in, in Europe. I mean, they literally, it's a turn-off on that. Christian was a, an MEP. You will know how hard that is. I mean, you just ask yourself, when was the last time you read a, an ordinary story about any part of Europe, or indeed any part of Britain that wasn't inside the, uh, the, the, the M25? And so that's why it seems the Power Commission laudable, and I absolutely support that. It's up against something that becomes self-fulfilling for us as filmmakers and commentators. It's very hard to get a story anywhere uh, taken, yeah, anywhere. But, but Back to that, Adam. But that is partly because of something else, which is that, in fact, the political elite have decided to put Europe onto the back burner. That, that it, not, none of them, none of the political parties, actually, perhaps uh, the Liberal Democrats might, but the, the, the major two parties do not want to talk about Europe just now. So that's one of the reasons why Europe is not being debated, is because the, the, you know, the, you know, those who do have power don't want that to be on the agenda. And you get those kinds of agreements between the, the folks about what becomes part of the great debate. And we're going to see it now on reforming the House of Lords and on party funding, is that, that parties come together and they stitch up some kind of a consensus on certain issues. And I think that one of them is Europe at the moment. Um, but uh, I, I want to take, take, to take the opportunity of, of, again, talking about this business of, you know, 
yes, we've got to recognize that people have changed. Part of the business, um, when Ian was saying there has to be a mix, it's absolutely true. People do want to know more about the people who are ruling them. In, when I was a child, we knew very little. Our politicians were grainy pictures in the newspapers or on the television screen. And we didn't know a lot about their personal lives or how they conducted their, themselves and so on. We, it was a much, much less um, accessible. And I, and I think that's because pe we have changed. Our expectations have changed. <laughs> and we are much more uh, interested and, uh, and knowing about how personality might affect how you conduct yourself and all of that. So people do want to know those things. It's just that they also want to themselves to be heard on stuff where they don't feel that their voice is, is counting. And it's how you interface that and how the media is going to help in interfacing with that, um, which I think is going to be one of the challenges in this period to come. Yeah, I, um, I, I don't agree that with her that Europe isn't in the media principally because politicians don't want to talk about it. And I think uh, Europe isn't in the media because journalists on the whole, or the people who take decisions, don't think their readers want to, or their viewers want to read or watch about it. I think this comes to what, I think the central issue around at least part of the discussion we've had for the last three quarters of an hour is, is what is the basic function of journalism? Is it simply to serve up what people want to read about and watch, or is it to go a stage further and say there are important subjects, which may be not you know, that easy normally to write about or make programmes about, but it is part of our job, I say part, not the whole, part of our job as journalists to find ways of interesting people in them, and not just writing 5,000-word articles in prospect, however word that they are, not only you know, making... Um, documentaries for BBC Four, but getting it into in the mainstream. When I was a very young journalist, there was a man called Nicholas Tomlin uh, on the Sunday Times who wrote a celebrated essay about journalism, which the best, the bits best remembered is there only three things you need to become a successful journalist a rat like cunning, a plausible manner, and a little literary ability. Um, but the more po important point he was making was that the real task of journalism is to find difficult and obscure and abstruse but important subjects and the job of a journalist should be to take those and find ways of making many people interested in them uh, without sacrificing uh, truth or accuracy or authenticity. And my central complaint is that that, for all sorts of reasons, that has largely been given up. That simply doesn't take place. And, and so I say, yes, let's have the blow-by-blow -blow accounts of Brown v. Blair, but let's also have something more substantial about what they're arguing about, and not only in prospects. Well, just very quickly, I, I agree with almost everything that um, Peter's just said. I think that, uh, and, and very much with that old adage that um, you know, comment is free but fact, facts are expensive, and with editorial budgets under increasing uh, fire, the facts is expensive a bit is, 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 it seems to me, really beginning to rule the roost, and you can see it in all sorts of areas. In, in uh, business journalism, for example, much less investigative journalism. I don't know whether we would ever have cracked uh, Robert Maxwell and the pension funds if uh, given the amount of money that's currently being devoted to investigative journalism in the business area compared with the situation uh, 20 years ago, uh, 10 years ago. Um, so I think that, that, that that's, a, that's a serious uh, problem. One other thing I would say which is difficult uh, for people in politics to deal with, and which is uh, nevertheless a clear feature of political reporting and of political comment, is the very adversarial uh, nature. If, 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 if uh, a journalist writes a story, they want to have a quote 
from somebody on the other side. And that can actually uh, be a good thing, clearly, in the normal political debate, but sometimes it can be a very bad thing. And a point that Al Gore makes, which I, which I think is, is, is absolutely right, is that on climate change, for example, there's recently been a survey of all the literature in peer-reviewed learned journals uh, showing over 900 articles over 10 years on climate change. And on those peer-reviewed learned journals, not a single article was actually sceptical about the hypothesis that you have to explain global warming through man-made carbon emissions. Not a single one. And yet if you look at the same period and you do a search on uh, U.S. newspapers, over half of the stories running in U.S. newspapers were actually sceptical about climate change. There's an enormous disconnect between the consensus in the scientific community and the very uh, the, the natural, uh, I know, having been a journalist, the very natural process whereby journalists want to create an adversarial uh, battle in order to interest their readers, even when actually there isn't one left. And I think that there can be a real problem for policy there, as we've seen in the U.S. on climate change. Chris, I, I, um, despite your kind remarks about me, I, I'm not sure I go the whole way with what you've, you've just said. The fact that there's a consensus doesn't necessarily make it right. No, that's My complaints about the way the climate change has been reported is that uh, virtually everything I've read has either been on one side or the other. Um, I think, actually, that there are serious sceptical points that have been made that need responding to, and not simply by saying only 1% of the argument is on that side or saying that they're all financed by car companies and oil companies in America. What you know, I want to see is not advocacy for or against the climate change. I would like, and I think one of the functions of journalism which should be there, which is simply abdicated, is to actually go to both sides, look at it properly, and actually reach oh, conclusions. But please, I mean, there is a point, isn't there, that, that you know, everyone assumes, for example, I don't know, cruelty to children is wrong, yeah? Mm. And therefore, when people write about cruelty to children, they don't always balance it with someone who says, well, on the other hand... Now, on the other hand, you could take the line that there will come a point yeah. where the scientific fact ought to be established that we have a problem with the environment and you don't always need to go yeah. you know find uh, some I think that's absolutely right and I think I'll add one other thing I think that there's plenty to have rows about in the environmental area there's plenty to row about policy what we're going to do about it how we're going to do it are we going to use taxes emissions trading scheme regulation whatever there's masses of stuff to get adversarial teeth into but the basic science is no longer uh, frankly represented properly in a story which, as uh, Adam says, you know, asks, uh, well, no, on the other hand, we are in favour of a bit of cruelty to children. I'm not talking about simple balance. You know, I, I hate this American newspaper thing of saying, this person said this, another person said that, and, and then not going nowhere with that. You, know, you should reach conclusions, but you should reach conclusions on the basis of a dispassionate analysis of it, not simply by saying, I am going to write a thing saying climate change is happening and it's terrible, or climate change isn't happening and it's all got up by uh, a false scientific consensus. Where is the um, journalistic exploration which comes to a conclusion, but which does it by saying more than all the opponents of climate change, you know, they're, 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 they're all wacky okay. and they're all paper right. the oil Lots industry. of comments on the floor coming through there. Gentlemen there in the... Uh <laughs> Uh, Julian Samways from City Firm Harmonic. Uh, two questions for the panel. Um, 
First of all, what comes across with more and more uh, coverage of politicians is actually the poor quality of elected politicians. Um, you get a few very high quality people, which is probably why the commentators focus on them, and a dreadful group of rent-a-quotes uh, rent which make people turn off from politics. Um, secondly, uh, there is also, also picking up from a, a comment from Steve Richards, about the fact that politicians are constrained in the sense that they don't seem to influence and lead agendas but seem to follow them and that their ability to control big issues like globalization environment really doesn't seem to be in the remit of the power. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, going back to the first point, also picking up from Steve about, about the fact that the quality, for example, of today's Labour cabinet diminishes very quickly when you get away from the top few people at the top. So bear in mind there's an issue about the quality of elected politicians and how they come across, and the fact that ultimately politicians don't seem to control the big agendas that really worry people. Is the debate between blogging versus written commentary somewhat irrelevant? Because the real issue is that politics seems to be coming across to people as increasingly irrelevant. irrelevant. Yeah. Good point. A lady behind you there. Um, I'm famed for my love of gossip, but I'm rather glad I don't have to go to Ian's blog to get it. Um, I think there's plenty of gossip around without going to politicians. And I think uh, the problem is that the 5,000-word articles about the policy differences between Brown and Blair are boring because the policy differences are boring. I mean, really, you know, there isn't that much difference between all the parties. We've all bought into Tina. There's no alternative. And there's no kind of big clash of ideas. There's no big vision of the future to inspire young people. There's no kind of capitalism versus communism or different ways of organising it. So politicians are now unable to stimulate us and interest us about the big ideas, the future vision of society. Tony Blair's only um, serious policy initiatives over the last few things have been about criminalising young children and ASBOs and parenting orders, hardly the stuff that's going to get us all uh, back into politics. So therefore we're left with gossip and the poor <coughs> columnists are left with only being able to report on personality differences because the policy differences are not not inspiring and exciting yeah. enough. Uh, okay, um, I agree. over here, so, was it? Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that strikes me about newspapers is that uh, it's certainly the front end is losing a lot of um, the bigger pieces from the environment correspondence, the home affairs correspondence. But if you're prepared to go through all the supplements that fall out, it is all there, and newspapers are printing more than ever, but it, it's not getting up into the top hierarchy, so it probably falls below the views that... Uh, you know, the bits that some of us read rather than discard. But when you do hunt for it, and certainly specialist journalists complain that they're having to write more and more for all sorts of bits. So it is there, and uh, some aficionados will be able to find it. My real interest is, is really a question to Ian about where the internet and the blogs are going to go. I mean, it is rich for us to complain bitterly that our national newspapers are dominated by personalities and soap opera. But if you go into the internet and the blog sphere in America, you move from just personalities into cruelty, abuse, rumour-mongering, outright lying, and all the rest of it. Stuff that uh, you know, started off with the radio jocks and has moved into the internet and has become a sort of electronic mob with no editors. I like editors. I like trusted sources of news. Now, and that's why it is interesting that, I mean, I think some of the conservative blogs are very, very good. I'm not sure whether to trust them or not, and I'm not sure whether, you know, they're going to indulge in some uh, rumour-mongering, etc. But the, some of this stuff on the internet is absolutely appalling and wouldn't, nobody would get away with it in print or in the broadcast media, etc. So is it going to become an electronic mob? OK, well, let's move on to the blog in a moment. But, I mean, two 
Very good uh, comments there about the quality of politicians and, and the quality of the political debate, Ian. Yeah. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. The challenge for politicians, particularly younger politicians nowadays, is to reclaim the agenda from the commentariat. I mean, why a Tory MP said to me the other day, he was bemoaning the fact that there are celebrities on question time. He says, they've even taken question time away from us. <laughs> I said, well, have you actually asked yourself why that is? It's because you're going to say something boring. So they're going to have somebody on the programme. I mean, Andrew Neil's at the back on this week. Why is it that on Andrew's programme, instead of having some crusty old Tory backbencher, he'll have the likes of Shane McGowan or Joe Brand? Because he thinks, and their programme thinks, that they will say something more interesting to the viewers. And, and the audience figures bear that out. Why was it during the, the summer of the Hutton report? Why was it that I was on Sky News virtually every morning giving my views on what was happening rather than some elected politician? It was because some editor at Sky News thought I might have something slightly more interesting to say than someone who was watching, uh, watching his P's and Q's all the time. Now, in a sense, that's wrong, because if you're in a democracy, you, you want your elected representatives to have a voice to, to tell people what they think. But if they're going to be on message all the time and have no edge, don't be surprised that the people on this panel are going to be the ones that you hear from all yeah. the time. I mean, I, I just want to come in on that. There would nothing upset the whips more than the fact that I would be the person that would be invited on and I had the label Labour whip, Labour uh, peer. And they kept encouraging me to think about going to the cross benches because it was the Labour in front of the peer that upset them. <laughs> and uh, and, and the, the, the truth is that if you were somebody who was saying anything that meant that you were not the talking clock, that you were not there, you know, just giving the, the, the line... Then of course people were more interested to hear what you had to say. Well, also if, if you ha happen to be somebody who's still in the court, still practicing, still knows something about why checks and balances might be important. I think I really want to come back to, to, to your comment about the fact that the, the sort of narcissism of small difference. Yes, of course there are differences, and and one would want to know more about what are the differences between the Blair and the Brown perspectives. But, but the reality is that we have one doctrine. We may not have one party, but we have one doctrine, basically, and we're living in a one-doctrine state. And the fact that, we're, that that has happened does make for a rather dull set of, of, of possibilities for the, for the citizen. So that they don't feel there's not much on offer that is very different, and that is a real pro problem for people. On the business of politicians and about the quality of politicians, I mean, we do have career politicians now. We don't have people who, by and large, have had other jobs and done other things. I mean, when it came to talking about reforming the House of Lords and how you might end up getting... you know, What, what folks out there say to you is, yes, we want a, a, an elected uh, House of Lords, but we want it to be independent, uh, but we also want it to be expert. And squaring that circle is very difficult if you have the parties choosing who gets to stand and you have you know, all those lists and all that stuff. You'll end up with a replica of the, of the same thing. So you know, it, trying to think of a way, I mean, we, we suggested, and it was kind of almost throwing something into the, into the pool, that you had to be over 40 to stand for election for the House of Lords, only, not because we were looking for a whole lot of more old folk, but only because we thought, well, at least then, if you also say you can't have been in the House of Commons, you could also say you have to have done a job, you have to have done something, you know, you have to have been somewhere and had some, you know, have some experience of something. So I think there are problems here, and that's what the public sniff out. They are not daft. They feel that, get, that there are these people who do a politics degree somewhere, become a, uh, you know, either a journalist on politics or a, a policy wonker or whatever it is, and they end up being an MP, and they feel they've done nothing else, and they don't feel that they have 
the same kind of uh, range in amongst their political class. Okay, now I, I know we've, we've, we've got comments, but I think we're probably going to get some final comments from our panel. We hope that you can touch on the bottom. Let's go to the floor and get a few more. The lady there. Uh, I just want to go back to uh, Steve, who I think is getting a rather hard time. Um, and I think he made one of the most interesting comments, which was a very honest one, um, and I wanted to press him on it, which is he said, uh, we haven't served our readers well by uh, being so preoccupied with the Blair-Brown relationship. So I, I wondered if he, can un if he sort of recognises that. What was the pressure on you then to ensure you weren't serving your readers well? Because as a, a former columnist... Um, it seemed to me always that that was all what our job was about, serving our readers. And I wondered then, what was the pressure? Was it coming from editors or is it your peers? I mean, I wonder if within the lobby there isn't a particularly powerful peer culture where the big beasts um, who come out with a big analysis of Blair and Brown are the ones who get the kudos and anybody who gets into the interesting discussions about constraints. With you know, I totally take Chris's point. I think that's the most interesting form of political commentating. Uh, but they're disregarded. The, the thing that matters is the big stories. Okay. Uh, behind there. Thanks. I'm Dermot Finch. I'm director of the Centre for Cities at IPPR. Given the comments on personalities and the quality of um, elected politicians, do you think the public would benefit from a prolonged... Uh, Tory-style uh, Labour leadership contest. Uh, I mean, commentators seem to be gagging for it. I mean, um, within days of um, Blair's speech, um, the weekend press was full of, um, you know, weakness-exposing articles on Brown, trying to open up the field, and that, that would give a good time to commentators, but the public would benefit uh, from a prolonged um, uh, campaign. Okay, uh, a few more. Yeah, lady there. If, like me, you don't sleep well and you wake up early, you do actually see an awful lot of coverage of interesting analysis of policy on the uh, either with Janet Daly in the middle of the night or on the Sunday programme first thing. What's so interesting, of course, is there's no audience other than the people who don't sleep like me. Uh, <laughs> and I'd just like to go to, to one other point that perhaps hasn't been covered. I happen to have a son who's just finished his Cardiff diploma and has started as a journalist. Uh, I've been covering a similar issue on business journalism, which Chris mentioned, and we happen to be running a seminar on why young journalists don't seem to be able to analyse business, understand what a balance sheet is, comment on it properly, do in-depth investigation. What are your tips for the young journalists of the future? They don't seem to know about economics. Um, they don't really seem to know about finance. They don't actually seem to have the equipment to make policy interesting in the way that Peter would so much like them to be able to do. Right, okay, uh, there. You, yeah. um, do you expect Tony Blair to go quietly? Once he's gone, is he going to pop up constantly, nagging at Brown? Now the project's gone with him. I do hope so. Right. Okay, and, <laughs> and, and, and finally, lady, lady there. University of Westminster and therefore delighted to hear a couple of panellists referring to the important work that academics do um, and perhaps one of the mo more important things that could happen is for journalists and, and the academic world to get together more so that journalists can interpret this work. Um, 
in my media department, what we concentrate on is global media, looking at media across the world. And I think there are some very chastening lessons now for our British media, because what we've turned into is a nation that used to love carry-on films in the summer, and now we get them all the time. And politicians are not only a bit, um, as everybody has said, a bit poor apart from one or two gigantic figures, but they behave extremely badly, and our press likes to report that. And I think it would be chastening for us to be more aware of the media around the world and how that stands up, even in societies that we might consider more totalitarian than our own. There is a great deal we can learn from those newspapers and I think don't just listen to the academics on the important matters of the day that you've referred to, but also the academics who are really studying the media and see if we can get ours in shape a bit. Thank you. I think one of the effects actually of the internet and and the blogging is that it's brought academics more into the debate than they were before. Certainly in my experience, (laughs) one thinks of uh, politicalbetting.com which is a very good... uh, Academic site. Now, what I'm going to do is just ask all the panellists to respond kind of uh, in their final comments to all the points which have been made. Just on, on, on the Blair Brown, I'd like to make two points. One is the reason I think why the columnists are obsessed with it, and we actually didn't in Rolling News to anything like the same extent, was because it was secret. I mean, you know, it was consistently denied that there was the power struggle between the two men that, that we, we've been told, which uh, most people believe was, was a dynamo for the whole thing. Uh, as far as uh, Blair dying away, I suspect that the model of John Major or indeed Bill Clinton will be followed by Tony Blair, that he won't go to the Lords and he will distance himself from politics but I think one place where I absolutely disagree with Steve I have to say is the notion that Blairism will die with Blair uh, my guess is that the wounds in the Labour Party uh, will fester for a decade as they did after the uh, ending of Margaret Thatcher which is perhaps not very cheering and uh, high tone of the debate. Anyway, over back to, back to, back to our panellists. Uh, and I would like you to, if you could, just touch on a very good point made about the uh, Wild West, the lawlessness of uh, the blogosphere as well. Peter. Um, let me make two points. One, on the, uh, um, on the blogosphere, I, I have a horrible feeling that we'll get Gresham's Law, that the bad will drive out the good. Um, uh, Neil Stewart said that uh, he, you know, he likes mediation and editing. I absolutely agree. I don't agree that a lot of what happens on the blogs will never get past um, a newspaper sub-editor. I have a horrible feeling that far too many newspaper sub-editors are far too lax in their standards. Um, the other point I'd like to make is, would lab- Labour le- leadership, would Labour benefit from a, a, a long contest? In my view, no. I, I think it would be better for the Labour Party if they had a coronation and no contest. Um, I say this as part of a, a wider point. Well, the benefit of the Conservatives is because they needed a long contest to reach the right decision. Um, but in general, elections, whether they're general elections or party elections, are the last place to look for any serious debate about anything. Um, and I say this not actually as a criticism. That it, it is not the job of elections for people to make big decisions about sets of ideas. Elections are there to ratify changes that have already been made. Uh, the Labour, Labour Home Inspire in 97 ratified a decision the public had come to during the final years of Major. Um, Margaret Thatcher coming in 1979 ratified a switch to monetarism that actually Dennis Healy had started under pressure from the IMF. Labour's victory in 1945 ratified the wartime consensus towards a welfare state. The time you get to the really interesting debates um, is outside elections. Um, so uh, I, I'm, I may be a minority of one, but I think the, the, a long 
divisive leadership election of the Labour Party would be very bad for the Labour Party. Um, well, uh, just a few uh, points. Um, uh, I always wondered before getting elected to the House of Commons why we had such a very big parliament by comparison with other countries. We've got 646 MPs. I think with uh, the complaints from the floor about the quality of MPs, perhaps that's some of the explanation of why we need such a large um, House of Commons. But certainly, uh, by comparison with other organizations I've been involved with, I don't think that the House of Commons is actually very different. Uh, you, you know, any organization, you tend to have um, uh, a, a group of people who are the real movers and shakers and others who are you know, traveling along. Top, uh, tips for young journalists. I think it's really problematic because the reality in the whole debate about newspapers or print journalism versus the Internet is that the economics of the Internet are, it seems to me, very unfavorable to what I think is the key uh, objective of journalism, which is actually reporting, digging out facts. Facts are expensive, comment is free. The reality is the Internet hasn't yet developed an income stream which enables the websites to support the sort of journalism which was traditionally associated with serious quality uh, newspapers, and I think that's a problem. So perhaps tip for young journalists, perhaps uh, try something else until you're confident uh, that there's actually a good income stream to support the sort of thing that you actually <coughs> want to. Will Blair go quietly? Yes, he's pretty relaxed. He's a pretty well-balanced character. I suspect he'll get on with his life and do something else. Uh, blogging brands, I think, are terribly important. Editing is very important because editing does actually give you some guarantee that what you're getting in the package uh, is not completely mad, completely manic. And maybe what you'll see on the internet, subject to my caveat about the economics of the internet, is that you will get the more reputable sites attempting to brand themselves with codes of conduct, with peer review, and so forth. But I come back to what I said finally in uh, my opening remarks. I think that there's not enough attention given to the big trends which are buffeting everybody, both journalists and politicians, on this particular stage, globalization, reconnecting politics and, 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 and trying to make sure that we uh, get the political system back into a position where people want to participate, uh, the environment, uh, decentralization. Those are the big themes, I think, for the next 10 years. And um, On the question of a prolonged Labour leadership contest, um, as a t citizen, I think it would be a disaster for the country, but as a Conservative, I would love it to take as long as it, as long as it can. I mean, it's interesting, whenever you hear Tony Blair and Gordon Brown talking about this, they say we're, we're going to act in the best interests of the party, and then almost as an afterthought, they say, and of course the country too. Um, it's very different from the Conservatives. The Conservatives were in opposition, had to have a, a meaningful policy debate, and contrary to my expectations, I mean, it did, the whole thing did actually work out. Whereas in the Labour Party, they're actually governing the country and they do have other things to do apart from talk amongst themselves. Um, will Blair go quietly? I think he will initially, but the temptation for any ex-Prime Minister to intervene is always there and at some point uh, won't be resisted. And Chris, it's interesting you said that Tony Blair was a very balanced character. That's, that's not quite the view that some of us hold when... Uh, he was talking last week about sort of giving Asbos to fetuses, I think, was uh, his new policy idea. On the question of uh, blogs, I mean, you raised some very valid points. I mean, there are, there are very good blogs, there are very bad blogs. There are, some blogs have a terrible influence. And we are three or four years behind America 
in blogging at the moment. Um, we saw recently how I think blogs were instrumental in unseating Joe Lieberman as Democratic, uh, the Democratic candidate in Connecticut. Now he's probably going to have the last laugh and probably get re-elected through uh, Republican votes. But it was a fairly vicious and nasty campaign. We, we saw it um, in the last presidential election with the Swift Boat Veterans, which was essentially a sort of viral marketing blogging campaign. We haven't really seen anything like that in this country, but it wouldn't surprise me uh, if we did at some point, whether it's on, on the left or the right. Um, transparency is important. Uh, people know where, where I come from. You make your own judgments about what I say. You know what agenda I have. You, you know if I'm plugged in through, through what I write. I don't expect people to agree with everything that I write, um, but I get a lot of people from the left reading the blogs. So I guess something must be right. I just want to make one final point on income streams. It's the same thing in, in blogs. Three or four months ago, I thought, if I get a proper job again, I can't do this because I'm, a, I'm not getting anything from it apart from sort of like the old, the old media appearance. Um, I think that's going to change. There's a company just started up which has effectively created a blogging cartel which is selling advertising across six, the six most popular blogs in the country. Now that will give the, the, the six of us an income stream which means that we can actually spend more time on it which uh, some people find very frightening <laughs> indeed. Okay. I suspect. Uh, Eleanor. First of all, on the blogging thing, I mean, I, I think it, we should see it as a, an, ex, uh, an exciting um, and challenging development because I, I think that young people are seeing it as their way into news and politics and are using it in very uh, interesting ways. I think we also should remember that it actually has been the source of whistleblowing on very important issues. I mean, in fact, even before Seymour Hersh wrote about Abu Ghraib, there was there were there was uh, uh, there were things on the blog uh, on blogs about what was happening, and there was whistleblowing taking place. And uh, I think that it's a, a, an important source for for information you don't get from other places. I think that obviously there's an issue about the, you know, discernment and about the absence of editors and so forth that, that are problematic. But I actually do think it's going to be one of the major ways in which people are going to find their, their voice um, in democracies, and it's going to be I, I think something that we have to really really handle well. I think that um, democracy is about managing power. And I think that if, if there's been any criticism on, the Bla on, on, on Blair's period in, in government, it's about um, the way in which power has been managed. I mean, if we even just put aside the Iraq issue, there are, the, for, the, for the general public, there's a feeling about how power has been managed. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that, that the big issue for the next period is going to be about citizen engagement and how that is dealt with in ways that are actually not going to be purely populist. How do you sort of sate that appetite for, for being heard without it becoming ugly? And I think that's going to involve you know, deliberative processes, and we're going to have to be creative in inventing them, and there's going to be a role for the media in that. Um, but the other thing is, on that question of will Blair go quietly, um, I, 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 I think it's very difficult for a space to be created, to have real debate about how Labour goes forward and what, what, how it renews itself, while the person who's been you know, leading the way over the last 10 years is, is there. Because inherent in, in reinventing is a, are criticisms, and I think that's problematic. I think that, uh, I think that uh, he probably will want to be statesmanlike and will go off and do his tour and remain reasonably quiet for a while. But let's remember that he has a wife who's got views too. And I don't know whether she'll be as restrained. So he may have a proxy uh, when it comes to criticizing whoever takes over the reins. Okay, Steve, you're the columnist. You've got the last word. Well, thank you very much. I wish I'd mentioned that bloody prospect article. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
never has a Prosper article roused such passions, so and none of you have read the bloody thing. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I was only trying to make the point that I think it's quite easy to identify the policy differences between them. I don't think they've been hidden. I don't think the media has failed in making pretty clear what they are. They're out there, if, uh, if, and you can find them. I, mean, I, I agree with you about... Um, at every level of this government, not just the uh, sort of more mediocre politicians, there is a fear around. There always has been. Uh, I've written sometimes, they're always accused of being arrogant, this lot. And I've written, they're not arrogant enough, really. They're, they're, they're scared, and they always have been. Just a quick vignette. In about 1998, I went in, uh, as economists do sometimes, to have a coffee with, with Blair. They were about 30 points ahead in the polls at the time. He could walk on water. Haig was in all sorts of trouble. And I was just having a chat with him. And um, <laughs> someone rushed into, his op- rushed into the place where he sits on that sofa and said, Tony, William Hague's changed his policy on rural post offices. What are we going to do about it? And panic. Right. Have you got our guys on? T- Sorry. So, you know, and <laughs> even then, they were terrified of the Conservatives. This was William Hague. And almost, it's very odd now the Tories are ahead in the polls, they're almost kind of relaxed, as if this was the moment that they're used to, being behind the Tory party in the polls. So they've always been scared of the Tory party. They've always been scared of the media at every level. All the stuff about control freakery, it really wasn't Mandelson and Campbell sitting there threatening to electrocute anyone who spoke out of turn. They are all frightened that if they speak out of line it will be portrayed as a split and division it's, it's the 80s inheritance the question is how much of the fear is justified, obviously the early fear of the Tory party which was conditioned because of their 80s experience was unjustified and irrational um, and, and they, they need to worried so much about the Tory policy on rural post offices um, that, that some of the stuff with the media is justified I mean the, the, the reality is that um, for example now I mean we say god this is a complete disaster for them they're out of control and yet when there was total control we condemned them for this sort of uniformity and control freakery I mean what we're seeing now is not that surprising when you think about it after a leader's been in power for 94, since 1994 we are seeing a reaction and that is politics. Okay. But, uh, just, can I just say uh, five seconds more yeah. to Madeline? Um, I think columnists are incestuous. Uh, Tony Benn used to say, Alan Watkins writes to Peter Jenkins, who writes back to Alan Watkins. <laughs> and they send letters to each other via columns. And there is, that is partly true. I don't think we've altogether failed, to be honest, in the sense that I think if you read the columns, you get a clearer idea of what's been happening at the top of the government than you will anywhere else. I just think it's unavoidable. All right, thank you very much indeed. And thanks to Ian Dale, Chris Hoon, Peter Kellner, Baroness Kennedy, and, uh, of course, Steve Richards. And thank you, and thanks to Editorial Intelligence as well. Thank you.